You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. All right, so the book of James. James is a man of action. His book is a book of action. And this is what we saw last week. James says, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Um, That'd probably be a pretty good thesis statement for the book of James, especially since he follows it up with practically, what does it mean to be a doer of the word? And his follow-up to this command right here just happens to be the outline for the rest of the book. He says in 126, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, you guys think you're so spiritual, but you don't bridle your tongue, you deceive your own heart and your religion is worthless. That's what we're going to study in James chapter 3, two weeks from now. Very powerful passage on how your spirituality should result in a change in the way you speak. He also says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. Visit orphans and widows in their distress. He's going to talk about that this week. The Christians care for the poor this week. A little bit next week, and also he's going to come back to it in chapter 5. And he says, you need to keep, keep oneself unstained by the world. There's a system around us that's corrosive to our spiritual lives, and we need to learn how to deal with that. That's what he's going to talk about in James chapter 4. And so these are the kinds of actions that our spirituality should result in. If we truly are a follower of Jesus Christ, if we truly have come into a relationship with him. And this one right here, this is the one that we're going to talk about here tonight. He says, you think you're spiritual. How are you doing with your care for the poor? Visiting orphans and widows in their distress. And of course, visiting, it doesn't just mean swing by and say hi. You know, that word visit, it's to care for, to look after, to do something about the orphans and widows, the most helpless in this society. These were the poorest and most helpless in that society. There was no social security system to care for women. Women didn't have rights. Uh, Women, if your husband died, if you were a widow, you, you were probably stuck with begging and prostitution. Orphans were also in really bad shape in this society. And what Scripture talks about, right from the earliest pages of our Bibles, is that God places a high value on helping the poor. And we could spend spend a whole month worth of central teachings talking about what the Bible says about the poor. But right from the very beginning of the birth of the nation of Israel, when God went and found them, they were a slave population in Egypt. And God rescued these poor slaves, and he led them to freedom and said, I'm going to take you to a land that I've got prepared for you. And so the very earliest laws, the instructions that God gives his people on how to live, he'll say, remember you were a slave population, remember how poor you were? Now this is how I want you to treat the poor. And so the, those earliest Jews had empathy. They had compassion for the poor because they were the poor. God says in Exodus 23, you must not deny justice to the poor. He says, you know, when, when you get into the land and you plant your crops... Plant and harvest your crops for six years, but then the seventh year, I don't want you to plant anything. I just want you to let the land lie fallow, which turns out to be good agricultural practice. But he says, and then just let the poor go out there and just take whatever they can find the next year, whatever happens to grow up on its own. In Leviticus 19, he tells the farmers again, he says, when you guys are harvesting, just leave that strip along the edge of the field. You know that one there? And um, if you're going through the rows and you're harvesting and you're putting stuff in your baskets and you drop a couple of grapes, don't bend over and pick them up. Just leave them sitting there. And then the poor people can come by after closing time and they can come through and they can pick up 
the parts that got dropped. He says, leave them for the poor and the foreigners among you. And so God built all kinds of these, these um, social kind of safety nets into the system. And what's cool about laws like this is it's not just go down and give them a handout. It's, it's available for people that want to work. And so the care for the poor is not enabling people and teaching them to be lazy when it comes to scripture, but it's, it's giving them an opportunity and trying to help them have the dignity that comes from going out and working and, and finding something in a society that would have just left them behind. Many warnings are given in the Bible to those who oppress the poor. For example, Proverbs 14, 31. Those who oppress the poor insult their maker, but helping the poor honors him. You treat the poor with contempt, these people made in the image of God, you're treating God with contempt. There's something deeply wrong with your heart if you treat the poor with contempt. He who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. Proverbs 19, 17. Yeah, God says, if you lend to the poor, I will pay you back someday. You know, it's pretty risky to lend to the poor because you may not get your money back. And God says, just do it anyway. And then we see Jesus come along. And we see Jesus honoring the poor. We see him right in line with this biblical emphasis. The, at the beginning of his ministry, the way he announced his, the start of what he was going to do, it says, he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. That's the scripture that he read about the Messiah. And so he came in some sort of a special way for the poor. He, you know, he helped people. He interacted with people from all socioeconomic classes. But we see him out there helping the poor, healing the poor, befriending the poor, teaching the poor, doing the things that your, your standard rabbis and your Pharisees just wouldn't. It was the riffraff, the people they didn't want anything to do with. Jesus says in Luke 14, when you give a reception... Don't just invite the rich people, the elite of society. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Literally, you will be happy since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And so God is telling them we need to go out of our way to do the thing that nobody else wants to do. And that is care for the poor. Jesus also criticized the Pharisees, the wealthy, the people who were looked at as spiritual. For their prosperity teaching, they, they believed that the fact that they were wealthy meant that God's blessing is upon me. And Jesus starts saying things like, no, actually, those who are first will be last. He starts teaching this reversal theology. He's critical of the Pharisees for the mistreatment of the poor. He said, you will offer these long, flowing prayers and then you'll turn right around and you will foreclose on a widow's house just because she missed her payment. And he is so angry about that. The hypocrisy of saying you love God and not caring for the poor, the hypocrisy of the wealthy claiming to be spiritual and oppressing the less fortunate. Jesus could not stand this, a complete lack of empathy from the rich, and this is an empathy that he had. And James is not real happy with his audience because of how they are treating the poor. They had probably absorbed some of this prosperity teaching that they had grown up in. Some of his readers probably grew up, these were Jewish converts to Christianity, they had probably grown up admiring the Pharisees, listening to this, that false teaching. And so James says, my brothers and sisters, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. 
Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Favoritism, partiality, favoring one person over the other. And look at what James calls his brother Jesus. He calls him the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He pairs three titles with the, term, with the name Jesus. He calls him, first of all, the Lord. And what that means is Jesus is the master overall, and he is my master. He calls himself a slave as he introduces himself in this letter. In fact, this word of Lord, this is also the word that the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is the word they would use for Yahweh, for God's name. And so this is loaded with um, a very high view of, of the deity of Christ. He also calls him the Christ. Christ was not Jesus' last name. Uh, it, it meant the Messiah, the Messiah, the christened one, the anointed one. To christen is to anoint. Um, this is what they do for the kings. And so he calls him not just, he's the master, he's my master, but he's also the anointed king. He's the promised one predicted in the Old Testament. And... When it says the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, it should literally read the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory, or the glory one, or the glorious one. And what was this a reference to? Well, in the Old Testament, the glory of God, when God built this tabernacle, it was supposed to teach them that God wants to dwell among his people. And once the tabernacle was completed, the presence of God came down into the tabernacle, into that tent. And at night, it would glow like a pillar of fire. In the day, it would be like a pillar of cloud. And this was the Shekinah glory, the glory of God. And, and what James is saying here is what John says. John says in John 1.14 that, he, that um, the word became flesh and came and dwelt among us. It tabernacled among us. Just like that Old Testament tabernacle was the place where God was. That was all pointing to Jesus, who is the glory of God. And so this is a very high view of Jesus that James is, is pointing out here. And he says, you, this is the one you're trusting him. This is the one you should be trying to please. And yet you're so worried about man and man's opinion and what people think that you're showing favoritism. You're taking two people created in the image of God and you're favoring one over the other. The rich and the poor, as we'll see. In verse 2, he says, with an attitude of personal favoritism. Yeah, he says, so this man comes into your assembly with a gold ring. He's dressed in fine clothes. And then there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. And so, you know, a guy walks into home church. He's a new person. And he walks in, and you can tell this guy is wealthy. <laughs> and you're like, oh, he's here. Oh, sir, thank you so much for coming. And uh, what, why don't you sit right down here in front? We've got a special seat just for you. And then another guy walks in, and he's not looking too good. And they would go to this guy, and they'd be like, um, Sir, I'm sorry, but um, could you just kind of stand over there, kind of around the corner? And if you could just kind of put this, this kind of sheet down, if you're going to sit down, that would, we'd appreciate that, Okay. <laughs> And so they're showing favoritism. They're kowtowing to the rich, and they're excluding the poor. They're paying special attention to the one wearing the fine clothes. And they're saying, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, why don't you just sit over there by my footstool? You just sit on the ground over there. 
Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? James knew what they were getting out here. He could tell he wasn't just judging their motives, he was judging their actions, and he knew where, what motives were causing those actions. You see, this was a poor society, and Christians were probably poorer than most. You know, the only wealthy in this society would be the, the aristocracy, as well as, you know, the handful of Jews that had essentially betrayed their fellow man and gone over to work with the Romans as tax collectors. And so there were a handful of wealthy Christians we read about in the early church, but they tended to lose that wealth, partly because they would look around at their poor brothers and sisters, and instead of viewing myself as on a plane above them, they saw them as brothers and sisters, and they began selling things to care for the poor among them. God was, was bringing their hearts to life with love. And there was also persecution. We read in Hebrews, for example, chapter... 10, that some of their property was seized because they were Christians. They're like, well, you're a Christian, you're a traitor, you're an infidel, I guess you don't need that anymore. And they would take the property away from them, they would take their possessions away. And so it would be tempting for the Christians to sort of, you know, when you're sitting there and you realize I'm starving, my family is starving, I can't provide for my own kids, and you see a wealthy man walk into your home church, you, it'd be hard not to give that guy special treatment because he wants something He's got something that you want. And so you pay special attention to him. And this, unfortunately, has been the pattern for the church throughout history. We've followed the world. The world does this. The world will kiss up to the wealthy because there's something I can get from them. But the church, unfortunately, has done it too. Special attention to the rich. You know, in the Middle Ages, it was pretty bad. They would actually sell church positions to the wealthy. Um, but this is still with us today. Special access to the leaders if you're a wealthy donor in the church. Um, the, the rich person can give a big donation but specify what he wants the church to spend it on, even if that's not what the leadership thinks it should be spent on. Rich people are used to getting their way. This was true back then, and we still see this today, unfortunately. And he says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves? So this is something that human beings always seem to do, making distinctions. It goes beyond rich and poor, but that's a big one. Why do we feel the need to make distinctions? The answer is this. When we fail to take our identity from God, who is supposed to tell us who we are, we create an arbitrary identity that's relative to the things around us. You know, imagine you find yourself just kind of floating around in a bubble here. And, um, you know, we come into the world sort of this way where we're like, we're trying to make sense of things. And I'm like, who am I? What am I? Am I good? Am I bad? Am I tall? Am I short? Am I strong? Am I weak? And then another little bubble floats along and you're like, oh, I guess I'm tall. But then you're like, yeah, but am I tall or is he short? And who am I? It really doesn't resolve this question. Even if there's several other bubbles floating around, you might look around and you're like, okay, there's some that are more like me and there's some that are less like me, but you draw a circle around the whole thing and it still leaves you wondering, who am I? You ever wonder this? Who am I? What's this all about? And what we are prone to do is we're prone to look around and be like, oh, I see people who are like me and who are different from me in this certain way that I've chosen. And so what if the three of us get together and we join forces against the little people? Where if the little people get together and they join forces, forces against those big freaks over there, 
And the big people are like, ah, oh, how's it going, little squirt? And little people are like, what are you talking about, you big overgrown oaf? And each side is making distinct distinctions and drawing into their separate corners. And we make distinctions in a lot of different areas. There's racial distinctions, where we stick together because we're of the same race. There's class distinctions, where we might not be the same race, but we come from the same class, the same level of society. There's the distinctions of gender, men versus women, has been a big one throughout history. There's age discrimination, young against the old, the old against the young, it goes both directions. The cultural distinctions. And um, these are all bad. These all come between us. These keep us from loving one another. These create a lot of problems in our personal lives and our society. And what we really need is we need a new source of identity. If only there was some sort of external measuring stick, if there was something that stood outside of the other people we're looking around at that could tell me who I really was. And what Scripture says is you're longing for that because that is what you were designed to long for. You were, you were originally designed to be in a relationship with God, who is the source of truth, who is the source of right and wrong, and now in Galatians 3.28, it says that Jesus Christ is the new leveler. Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, no racism. There is neither slave nor free, no classism. There is neither male nor female, no sexism. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus becomes the true and ultimate basis for true unity. The oneness we have in him. And the early church uh, started forming these, these radical communities where you had slaves sharing the table with masters. Where you had men and women. Even Jesus, he went out and he began teaching women, which was scandalous for a rabbi to do that. The Bible is on the front edge of human rights. You know, we look back now and we're like, wow, that's pretty primitive. Yeah, compared to today. But you've got to compare it to its, its own day. God is realistic. He knows we can only change so quickly. And so he's always pushing the envelope, pushing the envelope and laying the theological foundation, which says every single person is valuable in God's eyes. And this began to change things. It began to change the way people thought. It changed relationships from the inside out. And so James says, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those he, who love him? And so he says, you should not be dishonoring the poor and showing favoritism toward the rich, for one, because God chose the poor of the world to be rich in faith. Now this gets a little confusing because it, it almost sounds like when you read the Bible's teaching on the poor sometimes, it almost sounds like all poor people are good and all rich people are bad. And that's not what it teaches. It doesn't teach that all poor people are good. It's not saying all poor people are rich in faith. We see, for example, in the Proverbs, some people are poor because they're fools and they're lazy and they're wicked. And we read in other places about the righteous rich who are generous with their money and generous in good deeds, and they don't trust in their wealth. We see, I mean, you know, Paul was from a, a wealthy background. James wasn't, but Paul was. Uh, and we read about uh, wealthy people like Nicodemus, like Joseph of Arimathea, like Barnabas. 
who was a, a major landowner, played a, an important role in the early church. And so it's, it's not impossible. You know, rich people can be very good, very righteous um, believers in God. But on the other hand, it is harder to put your hope in God when you're wealthy. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 23, it's very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When you got all this wealth, uh, you realize, you know, especially back then more than now, coming to Christ could put my entire wealth at risk. And am I really ready to give that up? Am I really ready to put that on the line? It is hard to put your hope in God when you're wealthy. And it, it's just, it's, it's hard not to be self-reliant when you can provide all your needs. That's one of the problems with us living in a wealthy society like we are. We're all pretty wealthy or headed there for the most part compared to the rest of the world. <clears throat> this is reversal theology. This is the teaching that says the first will be last and the last will be first. If you want to be great, lose your life. If you lose your life, you'll, you'll find it. What we need to do is we need to look at things from God's perspective. That's, that's one of the problems we have. We look at things from a very horizontal perspective. We need to look at things from his perspective, from an eternal perspective, from the perspective of heaven. And the way God sees things, the poorest man in the world is the one who only has money. How poor you would be if all you had was money. The poorest man in the world who only has this life, because this life is going to be over so soon. And if you don't have riches in heaven, if you don't know where you're going in the next life, you're, you're impoverished. You're poor. And you need, you need to get the guarantee of where you're going in the next life that's only available through Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate example of reversal theology. Scripture tells us, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, he was in heaven. And yet he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Paul says, for your sake, he became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich. Yes, he emptied himself. He came to earth as a slave. He was obedient to the point of death, even the scandalous death of a cross, the shameful death of a criminal. Jesus left everything. You think his poverty on earth was bad. Compare that to what he left in heaven to come to earth. He grew up in a poor home. When he was born, there was, there was no bed for him to lie his head on. He was out with the farm animals in a feeding trough that they cleared out so they'd have a place to put this new little baby. When his parents go to offer the sacrifice in Luke 2.24, um, they're supposed to bring an animal from their flock, but they... It says, if you're really poor, you can just bring two birds. And that's what they did. They brought their two little birds because this is all that they had. He grew up in a lowly city like Nazareth, which was known for being just a, a backwater. N nobody came from Nazareth back then. This was not the wealthy, elite cities of ancient Israel. And, um, you know, he, he was the son of a carpenter. He had at least four brothers and two sisters. He, he was in a family of at least seven kids. By the time he's 30 years old, his dad is, is gone as far as we know. Passed away almost certainly, leaving little kids at home. This was not a wealthy family that Jesus grew up in. James grew up in this same home. He knows the life that Jesus lived. And you can tell James is just amazed that right there, growing up next to him, how many times did he wish that they were not living in poverty? And to realize the whole time, my big brother, Jesus, 
He had left everything to come. And he, didn't, he wasn't born into the royal palace. He wasn't born into a middle-class home. He was born into a poor, humble home. He says in his ministry, you know, foxes have holes, birds have nests. I have nowhere to lay my head. Are you sure you're ready to follow me? The final week of his life, he rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey on Palm Sunday. His final meal, he ate that in a borrowed room. And after he died and was crucified, he was buried in a borrowed grave. He actually was buried in a rich man's grave, but it was a borrowed grave because he couldn't have afforded something like that. The creator of everything, borrowing the different things he needs from created humans in order to live his life, especially the last week of his life. And James is wondering, you know, if my brother Jesus came to your home church, where would he be sitting? Would he be the guy where you're like, hey, can you just kind of go back over there? Here he is, the Lord, the King, the Shekinah glory. And here he was living life as a poor man. How unexpected is that? Not what you see from religious gurus. Not what you see from founders of religion. And this is what we see from our Lord. And James says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? There's another reason not to favor the rich. They're the ones that are making you poor. Why are you giving them all this preferential treatment? It's not that you should be anti-rich. You know, it's not like the rich guy's got to go sit outside. But this is the body of Christ. We're one in Christ. Can't we treat people equally? That's what's going to look different. The rich are dragging you into court. Don't they blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, James says, you're fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. Yes, the royal law. This was a, a verse from the Old Testament that when somebody asked Jesus, how do you sum up the whole law? He said, well, you've got to love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. He says, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. And so Jesus was setting aside the law by fulfilling it and saying, this is the new commandment in my new kingdom. For my followers, love your neighbor as yourself. And it's pretty clear from what James is saying here, his audience was not doing that. They were starting to do a little bit of a, when he starts bringing this up here. James says, but, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin. And you're convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Yeah. Boy, that is different than what you see taught in religion. Religion says, well, there's some good things, there's some bad things, and you've got to try to do a lot of good things, and of course you're going to do some bad things, but when you do the bad things, you've got to do the, the things we prescribe to make up for the bad things. And at the end, one of the common images is the cosmic scales, and all the good deeds will be loaded on this side and the bad deeds on this side, and which will weigh more? Well, that's not the way Christianity is. And if anyone's ever told you that it is, they didn't get it from the Bible. They made it up or they absorbed it from other religion. This is Christianity. 
Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles one time at one point has become guilty of all. How does a person get to heaven? There's the whole myth, good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. The reality is, according to the Bible, there are no good people. And so plan A, keep the entire moral law of God every minute of every day for the rest of your life. That's the only way in. And we can't bring that down to a level that we can easily step over. No, he's putting it up there like, love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And love other people just like you love yourself. All the time, every minute, every day. Never failing to do the good thing you should do. Never failing, never having a negative thought, a lustful thought. All of that would be enough to be considered a lawbreaker. And so plan A, I, I pray to God that you will not try to get to heaven on plan A. Be honest with yourself. You've already blown it on plan A. Plan B, on the other hand, is to receive God's grace through Jesus Christ. Yeah, Jesus says, under plan A, you need to be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. But he came to offer forgiveness. He came to offer himself up on the cross as a sacrifice in your place to die for you. And then he said, it is finished. There's nothing more to be added to it. And so this is why salvation is by grace alone, through faith. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. He who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now, if you don't commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. He's just sort of laying, rolling out more of what he's talking about here. Breaking it at one point breaks the whole thing. And he's not saying that all sins are equally destructive. Some people say or think or teach that. That's not true. Um, otherwise, telling a white lie versus launching a nuclear strike would be both equally bad. And they're not. Certain sins are way more destructive than other sins. There are ethical, there's an ethical hierarchy. Certain sins are worse than others. Jesus says it's like the difference between swallowing a gnat and swallowing a camel. You don't want to swallow either one of them. But it'd be a pity to strain out the gnat and then swallow a camel. He is saying all sin is equally disqualifying, though, in God's eyes. That one single sin is enough to render you falling short of the glory of God and needing that free gift from Jesus Christ. So he says, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. So he says, instead of making distinctions against one another, why don't you turn the lens back around and take a look at yourself and ask, how am I carrying out the law of love? What a difference that would be from partiality and favoritism. Thinking, how am I doing everything in my power for the good of this other person? Because judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so what he's saying here is, if you've really received God's mercy, you're going to want to show mercy to other people. And what we need is mercy here. We need mercy that's what we need in our communities. So caring for the poor. Let's talk about this a little bit. What happened was the early church began to care for the poor in revolutionary ways. Caring for orphans and widows. In 1 Timothy 5, we see a long list of instructions about how exactly they were to care for the widows. We see this program being implemented in Acts chapter 6. And this 
was a society that treated children like garbage. They had such a low view of the young. Look at some of these quotes from ancient authors. Plutarch, in the first century AD, he talks about the child sacrifice at Carthage. He says, Carthaginians offered up their own children. What if you didn't have a kid? Well, those who had no children, they would just go buy little ones from poor people. And then they would just cut their throats and offer them up as if they were so many lambs or young birds. This is pagan religion right here. Meanwhile, the mother stood by without a tear or a moan. Yeah, you're so poor. You're starving to death. Your kids are starving to death. My kid's going to die anyway. I think they just felt like I might as well get some money here and, and spare my child a painful death and try to live a little bit longer. Child sacrifice in the time of Christ. Seneca, the Roman philosopher, says, you know, we just drown children who at birth are weakly and abnormal. Do you have some kind of a disability? You know someone that was born with a disability? You wouldn't have made it past the, uh, the, birth, the birth bed in ancient times. They had no problem just tossing them in the water. That'd be a pretty easy way to get rid of them. You're not going to hear anything. You're not going to see anything. And um, it makes a dirty job easy as far as they were considered. Here's Hilarion. He's a soldier writing to his wife from Alexandria, reflecting the attitude of the day. He writes to his wife. He says, he's writing to, he calls her his sister Alice. He says, very many greetings. I beg and entreat you, take care of the little one, and as soon as we receive our pay, I will send it up to you. Oh, how's Junior? Oh, I can't wait to see you. I'm going to send the pay as soon as I get it. It seems like a very decent, upstanding man. He says, if by chance you bear a child, if it is a boy, let it be. But if it's a girl, cast it out, obviously. They had become callous to this sort of behavior. The drowning, or sometimes they would just take this child and they would carry it outside the city and they would just set it down. And then they would go back inside. They didn't want to have to think about it. They didn't want to have to hear it. They didn't want to have to see it. And that child would be devoured by wild animals, by birds. And that child would perish. And this was happening all the time. Skeletons of little one and two day old babies scattered throughout the hillsides around ancient cities in the time of Christ. And you know what the Christians started doing? They would get a report that there was a baby out on the east side of town. And somebody would go out there and they would tenderly bend down and wrap that baby up and pick it up. And they would carry that baby back to home church. And they would say, we got another one here. Who wants it? Who wants her? It was usually girls, because girls were just viewed as a waste of space, a waste of resources. And so little girl after little girl was raised in a Christian home in the early church. And they were raised to love God caring for orphans, caring for this child who's at the most vulnerable point in their life, who doesn't have a chance. It was the Christians who said, yeah, we'll take him. That's a person made in the image of God. That's not, that's not the garbage that you take out and dispose of on the hillside. What's our approach to caring for the poor? Well, our fellowship has done a lot in this area. 
our basic approach here is we want to devote most of our resources to projects that are going to bring long-term change, both economic and spiritual change. You know, we do need relief work at times. A hurricane hits and people are without a place to live and we need to send resources for that. But we want to, we want to minimize how much short-term relief we're doing. And we want to go for long-term community development. We know that some sorts of help don't really help. You've you got to study this issue. It's not just easy as just sending some money to poor people. We've got to help in ways that really help. And there are many economic problems that have spiritual causes. And we don't have time to go too much into this. But K.P. O'Hannon talks a little bit about this in his book, Revolution and World Missions. He was born as a, a poor man in India. And he says, we know that there's, there's extreme hunger problems in India. He says, the key factor in the most neglected is understanding how India's hunger problem is related to its b- belief system. Its belief system affects its food production. Most people know of sacred cows that roam free, eating tons of grain while nearby people starve. But a lesser known and more sinister culprit is another animal protected by religious belief, the rat. According to those who believe in reincarnation, the rat must be protected as a likely recipient for a reincarnated soul on its way up the ladder of spiritual evolution to nirvana. Although many Asians reject this and seek to poison rats, large-scale efforts of extermination have been thwarted by religious outcry. Rats eat or spoil 20% of India's food grain every year. How much is that? It amounts to 26.8 million metric tons from a single harvest. He says the devastating effects of the rat in India should make it an object of scorn. Instead, because of the spiritual blindness of the people, the rat is protected and in some place like a temple 30 miles south of Bikaner in North India even worshipped. Clearly, the agony we see in the faces of those starving children and beggars is actually caused by centuries of religious slavery. Yes, a religion that feeds the rats and lets the children starve, a worldview that holds to that, I got a problem with that. He's, he, he's an insider speaking, saying, I, I know that there are, there's more than just, it's not just that we need more money. There are belief systems that are holding my country in poverty. We do think more resources should go to foreign countries where poverty is a lot worse. But we still do a lot of work with the poor here. We also know we need to accept limitations on how many people we can help in order to affect real lasting change. Now, let's just send two bucks to every poor person in America. That's not going to do any good. You know, we've got to look at specific communities that are big enough to have an impact, but small enough that we can actually have an impact. And that's what we want to do. And so, some of the work we're doing, one of the big long-term projects we've had going is Urban Concern, out of which came Harambe Christian School. We've been working on this for about 30 years. This is a pre-K through 8th grade school. Look at the test performance. This is an area in South Linden, which is a very poor part of Columbus. And uh, look how the Harambe students performed in the 27-18 Ohio Test Performance Index. Ahead of a lot of the wealthy suburb schools, uh, behind only Worthington and Upper Arlington, that's pretty good. That's incredible. You can see how it compares to uh, places like Columbus City down at 61%. And uh, this school is in South Linden. There's, there's Linden Elementary, Windsor Elementary, 46, 39.5 performance. Um, 
really having a huge impact in the lives of these students. You can see a picture here from the Facebook page. This is a big investment. We're talking over 16 million bucks at this point over the past 30 years. There's tutoring, there's an after-school program, there's summer programs, hundreds of thousands of volunteer and staff hours. I could easily say we're up to at this point, perhaps into the millions. This is hard, long-term work. We are still working at this. We're still, still not reached our goal yet, which is total community transformation, total life transformation for these students that are coming through. You know, we're, um, we're undertaking a pretty big project right now to launch a high school. called. It's going to be named Akili High School is the name they picked for it. It's Swahili for like intelligence or wisdom or something like that. It's supposed to launch this fall, 2020. That's going to be an expensive project, but um, it's worth it. Because God says this, this is what must be done. Because God loves the poor. A lot of other efforts helping the poor in Columbus. We've got free clinics, legal clinics, dental clinics, health clinics that go on every week at various locations throughout the city. Renegade Bible studies. These are, um, there's a meal and a Bible study provided for kids from the poorer parts of Columbus. Life coaching. Uh, we've got dozens at this point of people under life coaching, maybe some of you here in this room, just helping you learn skills that you might have learned if you'd grown up in a different family or in a different school district, a different community, but you didn't. And so you've got someone in there helping you get, help, help keep things moving for what you need in order to succeed in education and career. We've got recovery groups of all sorts, addiction groups, grief share, abortion recovery, sexual abuse recovery groups. All of these are deep hurts that people have, deep needs that they have that they need help with. We partnered with Youth for Christ in a major way on the west side of Columbus. Their City Life Center, um, Wellspring is low-cost clinical counseling that they provide. Grace Haven is a very uh, um, powerful ministry to sex traffic victims, women that are coming out of that. Life coaching, charter school, we've got job training, the new uh, YFC Wheels. I guess it's already going, but there's a new location going in right next to our, um, our warehouse facility up there teaching people how to, uh, the, a trade, working on cars. Juvenile justice ministries, mentoring. Uh, IFI, work with international students. Uh, is, um, at one point, we had over 500 uh, volunteers working in that ministry. World Relief Refugee Resettlement was quite large a couple years ago, but it's not around anymore due to changes in the U.S. government um, policy on immigrants. There wasn't much of a need for refugee resettlement. Um, but that was a pretty ex extensive ministry at one point. And honestly, most of the work with the poor happens in our home churches and goes unnoticed. Unnoticed by everyone except for God, that is, who is very pleased and says, I will pay you back for that. What we're really doing here is we're building a support structure to feed resources and workers into this spiritual battle. It's not something that everybody can be on the front lines necessarily because it takes a lot more than a single person to do this. We need a whole support structure. Burnout is pretty high in these sorts of ministries. And this is, doesn't even include working with the poorest of the poor in at least eight different mission fields around the world. Total spending on the poor in missions just last year, 3.14 million. Our total spending on that. And I feel like the future, this is going to get even bigger. This is a great work that God is doing in our church. We praise Him for that. 
What about me on a personal level? I was trying to think about this. Um, what I do, and I think what a lot of us could do, is financial giving. Directly to aid workers, I give directly to several missionaries working around the world. Um, my wife and I were supporting a pastor through India Gospel League for the past two years. Um, for 100 bucks a month, you can support a pastor's entire salary in the work that he's doing, and then after two years, he's supposed to be, have a church that's big enough to support him. So that money can be uh, given to somebody else. Xenos General Fund gives tons of money to the poor. Um, of the money you give to that, we try to siphon as much of that as possible off to the poor. And there's also just helping the poor in our own home church. Um, you know, whether it's uh, helping with car repairs for uh, somebody that's, that's poor and needy, whether it's uh, several of us chipped in to pay for college tuition for a guy um, who... Um, was just not getting it done otherwise. It's from a very poor neighborhood, a very poor family. And um, it's awesome to be able to help in this way, to give a little bit of, the, of what God has given us. Um, my wife and I do a lot of work with young people in our home church who just didn't really come from a whole family. And they get to be part of our family for a little while and sit around the dinner table and sort of see what a Christian family functions like and then go off and start their own. Supplying workers through discipleship, a lot of the people who we have studied the Bible with have gone off to be workers in ministries along these lines. And um, just uh, as a leader in this church, I'm doing my best to try to help our church go the right direction in this area. So what about you? What about you? And this important work God has called us to do. Will you continue to show partiality? Continue to look the other way? Continue to criticize others or think the government is going to fix the problem? Governments can do some things, but don't trust the government to solve all poverty ultimately. Or will you practice the royal law of love? Learning to give of yourself as Christ has loved you. Yeah, Lord, this is not a... Um, your goal here is not to make us feel guilty or anything like that, but to realize the opportunity that we have. And also to realize the generosity that we've received from you, to, to understand your heart for the poor, to have empathy for those that haven't had the same advantages that we've had, Lord, and to see that um, it's not for no reason that we've, we've received what we have, but it's because you want us to give to others. And thank you that that you modeled that ultimately in Jesus Christ by sending your Son, Lord. Um, I pray, too, for those of us here who um, have never encountered you and your generosity. I pray that um, if, not, if they're not ready to do that tonight, that they would be willing to come back and take a closer look at what you have to say and investigate the concept of grace. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.